So I'm going to um, read my little talk, and um, it's, from, it's from a book that has uh, just come out from Pacific University called When the Rewards Can Be So Great, and it's a compilation of selected craft talks delivered by faculty at Pacific University's MFA, and it's edited and with a preface by Kwame Dawes, and includes essays by Kwame Dawes and Pam Houston, Marvin Bell, Ben Piercy, you know, Carolyn Corman. I mean, so it's a wonderful little book. And this is my um, addition to that book. And it's um, <coughs> called The Brilliance of the Simple Line. And I use my <coughs> dear husband's poem as an example of this. So I'm not only pushing the, the book of essays, but my husband's new book of poems, which is just out, although this is um, called Kingdom on Carnegie Mellon. Uh, University Press, but this is from an earlier book of his. And the poem that I'm going to use as a, my first example is a poem of his called After Listening to a Lecture on Form. I'm afraid of the mountains in this thin glacial air, of going to sleep in their shadow, that the granite inside them and the threads of bright metal may not hold once the night comes. I'm afraid of so many people talking. The cat smile of the poetry scholar, his ridged skull. When he spoke of measure, I could feel my wristwatch tighten, remembered the payments coming due on my daughter's tuition. I went down by the horses. Birds were walking in the hay beside the feet of the Appaloosa. He looked at me sideways in the swaying dusk, the wheels of his jawbones, the great vein in his face. Sometimes I can hardly breathe. It's a great poem, huh? One thing I have always admired about my husband is that he can simply write a poem. Another way to say this is that he can write a poem without much decoration, fanfare, or frill. No extra words, and every word counts. It's difficult to write a simple poem, a poem of precision, accuracy, depth, and breadth, one where each image is necessary to the whole, where the language both sings and means, makes and unmakes. After looking at the, constructive, the construction of this deceptively simple poem for years, I finally see how it works, how dependent it is on diction and word choice, the gravitas achieved through what I'll call stately language. I find three categories of words in this poem, the stately, the elemental, and the vulnerable. Note the word choices in the opening stanza, words like Mountains, glacial, shadow, granite, metal. All trochees are simple two-syllable words that have balance and heft, as a good knife handle has heft. Malar also uses words like air, sleep, night, soft. One-syllable words that imply the insubstantial world, as well as words such as afraid, thin, threads, hold, that imply the vulnerability and insignificance of the human in relation to the world. 
The word shadow could be placed maybe in all three categories, depending on its usage, stately, elemental, or vulnerable. Here it's used as an image. The shadow belongs to the stately mountain, and so that shadow is seen in a more substantial context. In the second stanza, we note the repetition of the word afraid and the reinforcement of the idea of the human as somewhat trivial, this time almost laughable. People talking, cat smile, poetry scholar, his ridged skull, seems a nod to the great mountains overshadowing everything, but only in that it makes the poetry scholar seem a buffoon, a man trying to act like a mountain, and for at least this poet, failing. There is also the humor inherent in measure versus wristwatch, payments, tuition, the diurnal and the eternal set against the mundane. In the third stanza, we feel the stark simplicity of the opening assertion as a counter to all that's been presented. I went down by the horses. Birds, hay, dusk, words and images that are elemental, eternal, real and then the elevation of the horse and the movement toward the mythic, a position beyond mere mortals, diction and image taking over and making the moment as large as the mountain. Appaloosa, wheels, jawbones, vein, face. And then one perfect word of action, swaying, and one carefully chosen adjective, great each word proceeding and unfolding as it should to the final sentiment, the slow flush of recognition, sometimes I can hardly breathe. The word breathe here is tied back to the thin air in the second line, so it is both literal as well as a figure that stands in for the emotion the speaker is feeling. I don't know who said it, or if this is exactly right, but it was something like, there should be an invisible line at the end of every poem that says, and after that, everything changed. We now see the speaker and ourselves for who we are, small creatures in a vast landscape, looking for our rightful place, or maybe being reminded of our place in the grand scheme. The poem balances on the premise of setting the mundane and even the silly against the grandeur of nature and the human being's position in it, our natural awe and fear of what's more powerful than we are, the mountains, the metal, the horses, as well as that on which we depend, the air, sleep, even the birds. Our daily concerns, our lofty intellectual exercises are seen for what they are, transient, the true poet is in all of us who get up and leave the room. As Whitman did, and I heard the learned astronomer, to simply look out at the stars, allowing the mystery to overwhelm and confound. When I heard the learned astronomer. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures, were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide, and measure them. When I, sitting, heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room. How soon, unaccountable, I became tired and sick. Till rising and gliding out, I wandered off by myself 
in the mystical, moist night air, and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. Whitman's poem is simple as well, not at all like his abundant, extravagant leaves, uh, song of myself. His simple repetition of when, when, when is set against the piling up of mathematical language, but stated simply proofs, figures, charts, diagrams, add, divide. Whitman's two well-chosen verbs, as in Millar's poem, are notable, rising, gliding. Then his wonderful wandered, which harkens back to the early learned, in the penultimate line, Whitman pulls out all the stops to give us the mystical moist night air, the first overtly poetic line in the poem, though he follows it up with the simplicity of a perfect, metrically balanced ten-syllable line, looked up in perfect silence at the stars. The mystical moist night air and the perfect silence now seem more majestic and substantial than all that had come before. The commonalities between these poems are evident in their dialectics. Small stories set against a large landscape, what's known set against the unknown, and diction the vehicle that gets us from there to here. To each poet, these moments were part of an ordinary day or night that somehow became emblematic of a certain kind of purity, things suddenly exactly as they should be, greatness aligned with quiet joy and true astonishment pure spirits moving through the world at the very pace they should be moving, like a horse walking, like the stars traveling through the night sky, the world presenting itself to be looked upon with fear and awe and a sense of supplication, in a word, holy, but a secular holiness, devoid of wrath or judgment, the kind of wordless purity essential to the human spirit. Other writers who do this are James Wright, William Stafford, Jane Hirschfield, Lucille Clifton, Yusuf Kuminyaka, Jack Gilbert, and Linda Gregg, and the list goes on. But these are a few to look at who work in this vein. Simplicity intensified through diction, syntax, pacing, through the use primarily of nouns. Small poems that open up into mystery. Blake's grain of sand through which eternities are seen. William Giraldi, when speaking of H.L. Mencken, who implores us to be more demanding and exacting in our modern-day criticism, asked, why are aesthetic matters important? Because without the beauty of language and form, without the depth and dynamism of language, no one who has cultivated the die-hard combo of intellect and taste will care a damn about what the writer wants to say. Yes, the beauty, depth, and dynamism of language is what elevates the poem. And without an understanding of how language works on us, the gloriously simple poem, the expansive poem, the poem we will remember, remains merely simple, rather than a poem that is more than the sum of its parts. I admire how these poets can make so much happen when working with so little. I'm not so good at it myself. But even after studying and imitating them, have failed more often than succeeded. But it's worth the trying when the rewards can be so great. One more detail. Until I mentioned the thematic similarities between Whitman's poem and Joe's, my husband hadn't noticed it. Though he was familiar with the poem, he hadn't actually read it for years. 
We are touched as writers by what we read. T.S. Eliot said, good writers borrow, great writers steal. And Joe's poem is an example of the best kind of stealing, a hand reaching down from the unconscious or stepping through the looking glass and taking what it needs. Here's another well-known example from Robert Hayden, Those Winter Sundays. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then, with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking, when the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house, speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? The diction in this poem is mostly simple, except for a few very well-chosen words. Blue-black, chronic, austere offices. The stark line, no one ever thanked him, is similar in effect to Millar's, I went down by the horses. That kind of simplicity is hard won. We know the writer is capable of complexity as evidenced in the music and tension in the lines that precede it. With cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather made banked fires blaze. Any poet that can write a line like that, right? I mean, wouldn't you just die to write a line like that? Once in your life, right? And then to follow it with, no one ever thanked him, right? You know, that kind of simplicity is really sitting on the back of all that complexity. When complex lines are set against one stark line, simplicity sings and is weighted with intent. And this was much of what we talked about in class today. Um, we talked about simplicity and how, how that can work and kind of the discretion of lines. And we used uh, our first poem is a poem by Lynn Emanuel. Um, I had chosen poems from everyone here. There's such a wealth of great poets and poetry here. And so we're going to look at Terence Hayes' American Sonnet. We're going to look at Martha Rhodes, Our Father at 80. Um, Carl Phillips says From a Quiver of Arrows. Daisy Freed, Midnight Feeding. Tina Chang, Naming the Light. And David Baker's The City of God. And so we're going to go through those poems and look at them very closely to see how they work. This particular poem we went over today um, of Lynn's uh, we talked a lot about the simplicity of this poem and how she achieves such complexity. Um, but one of the little tricks that is really just a circus act, and I hope, I hope Lynn's okay with this, is um, uh, reading the poem to you, and then I'm going to do something after I read the poem that kind of proves my point about discretion of line and um, simplicity. It's called Frying Trout While Drunk. Mother is drinking to forget a man who could fill the woods with invitations. Come with me, he whispered, and she went. In his Nash Rambler, its dash where her knees turned green in the radium dials of the 50s. When I drink, 
it is always 1953. Bacon wilting in the pan on Cook Street, and mother, wrist deep in red water, laying a trail from the sink to a glass of gin and back. She is a beautiful, unlucky woman, in love with a man of lechery so solid you could build a table on it. And when you did, the blues would come to visit. I would remember all of us awkwardly at dinner, the dark slung across the porch, and then mother's dress falling to the floor, buttons ticking like seeds spit on a plate. When I drink, I am too much like her. The knife in one hand and the trout with a belly white as my wrist. I have loved you all my life, she told him, and it was true, in the same way that all her life she drank, dedicated to the act itself. She stood at this stove and with the care of the very drunk handed him the plate. Beautiful poem. And one trick that I, you know, like I said, the little circus trick I have, anytime I read a brilliant poem, I like to kind of test it out for discretion of line by reading it backwards. So we'll listen to this poem backwards and see how it sounds. You have to imagine her saying, she handed him the plate. She handed him the plate, and with the care of the very drunk, she stood at this stove. She drank, dedicated to the act itself, in the same way that all her life she told him, and it was true, I have loved you all my life, with a belly white as my wrist, the knife in one hand and the trout. When I drink, I am too much like her, Buttons ticking like seeds spit on a plate, and then mother's dress falling to the floor, the dark slung across the porch. I remember all of us awkwardly at dinner, and when you did, the blues would come to visit. You could build a table on it, in love with a man of lechery so solid, she is a beautiful, unlucky woman, to a glass of gin and back laying a trail from the sink, and mother, wrist deep in red water, bacon wilting in the pan on Cook Street. When I drink, it is always 1953, in the radium dials of the 50s, where her knees turned green in his Nash rambler, its dash, come with me, he whispered, and she went, who could fill the woods with invitations. Mother is drinking to forget a man. 